chapter 8, we're going to continue on from uh, where we looked at last week. So we're going to start at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Is what we're going to look at through the end of the chapter. Uh, I want to paint the picture a little bit here of where we are. Uh, we're at the Sea of Galilee, which if you're not very familiar with the uh, geography there, it's a rather large lake that's known by several different names in the Bible. It's about 65 square miles, and to help put that in perspective, if you take the Athens Loop, You could put the whole Athens loop inside this lake and still have some room left over. So it kind of gives you an idea of how big this lake is. And all the way around this lake, there was uh, little towns and villages and communities all the way around it. And there was a thriving fishing community there. There There's a lot of fish there. And so this was a big part of the industry that they would fish this lake. Much of the ministry of Jesus took place on and around this lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He recruited four of his apostles, Peter, Andrew, John, and James, uh, right on the shores of this lake, uh, where he fed the 5,000 and where he walked on water. Those two stories always appear together there, and they occurred on or around this lake. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is thought to have been preached on a hill or a mountain overlooking this lake. And uh, when Jesus told the disciples to throw out their nets one more time and they brought in this huge boatload of fish, it was on this lake. So this lake is very central to uh, a lot of the events that we see in the New Testament. So I just want to give you a a full picture of where we're talking about here. Let's start reading in uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Now, one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Let's pray together. Lord, every time one of us comes face to face with you for that first time, we have to answer the question, who then is this? Who is Jesus? Lord, we pray that you would show us who you are this morning through, the, through your scripture, that we would see what faith really is. Lord, and that we'd be drawn closer and that our faith would grow. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a couple of things in this passage that we should see right off the bat. One, Jesus was completely human. He had to sleep just like the rest of us. And during this time of very active ministry, it was obviously that he was probably exhausted. And so even in the midst of crossing the sea in a boat, which was probably only big enough for maybe 15, 20 people, and in the midst of this storm, he's still sound asleep. Now, me, I wake up to just about anything, but I know some other folks can sleep through a storm on the sea and it'd be perfectly fine. But we can imagine that Jesus is pretty tired here. He required sleep. And this is the only passage in Scripture that speaks of Jesus sleeping. And as the old saying goes, Jesus was literally in the same boat as his disciples. 
whatever peril, whatever happened to them was going to happen to him. And, and which is comforting for us that wherever Jesus sends us, he's going to go with us. We're, we're not out there alone. And then we see that he rebukes nature. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And we see that nature operates by the rules that God set up for it. But God, whenever he wants to, can intervene and make things happen supernaturally that don't normally happen. That's something that a lot of people have a hard time with. It's what we call miracles. But we see that if God created it, he can intervene as he sees fit. And this question that he left with them, where is your faith? Jesus makes this event, this storm in the middle of this lake, a test of faith for them. Because every time we have a test of faith, we have to reevaluate where we are. Because being with Christ doesn't mean that storms will not come, but that He, will, he can get us through them. Whenever we fail a test at school or when we have a project at work that just goes sideways and bad things happen, we have to decide, and, and when it's all for our fault primarily, we have to decide, all right, do I study, do I prepare better, do I do my job better, or do I quit? When we're in, in our marriages, in our relationships, and in our families, when things are not going well and we have this test in front of us, we have to go, am I going to work to improve this or sustain this marriage, or am I going to quit, or am I going to walk away? When we have a test of faith, our faith will either grow or diminish. It will not stay the same. Whenever we have that test of faith, we're either going to go up or down. We're not going to stay level because it's a test. That's what it's there for. So Jesus asked them, or the, the disciples asked, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? It is somewhat of a rhetorical question, but the answer would come from a pretty unlikely source. Let's keep reading, starting at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed by demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So when we we have this picture of the tombs, when I was a kid, I always pictured this story as kind of like one of those cemeteries that you'd see in New Orleans where all the graves are above ground. That's always like the mental picture I had. But as I've gotten older and realized what the customs were there... If you remember the story of Jesus when he was buried, he was put into what was basically a cave and then a stone was rolled over in front of it. This was the typical way that they would bury a person. They would have these caves dug and they would put them in there 
And then after a few years, when the flesh had gone away, there'd be just the bones, and then they would come in and move them to a smaller box. And many of these boxes have been found now by archaeologists and have been interesting to think of some of the, the notations that are on there. But the demon recognized who Jesus was. And it says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The demons recognized Christ as the judge and the authority over them. They, he had to bow down to him because of the power and the authority of Jesus. And it's interesting to note that Jesus' power and his authority is not dependent on our faith. Jesus is who he is whether we believe it or not. And even though the demons knew who he was, it's not that they were like, okay, Jesus, we're going to do what you say because we like you. No, they were under his authority. He had complete authority over them. But for us, faith is what opens the door for God to work in our lives. He's not going to impose himself on us. But when we have faith, we open the door for him to work. We see this demon-possessed man. He has supernatural strength. He broke chains. He broke bonds that were on him. People would try to contain him uh, for his own safety, but also for the safety of others. And uh, through the demons working in him, he had the supernatural power to, to break those. And you may, and you may see the, the word legion here. It says, what is your name? And he said, legion. And a legion in military terms at this time typically meant thousands of men and hundreds of horses. So that it was obviously a large number. But it's basically a shorthand for a very large number. And then when we see a little bit later in Mark 5, where it talks about this same event, it said that there were about 2,000 swine that were part of this herd. So comparable numbers, thousands, thousands of demons, thousands of pigs that were a part of this. So you see the comparison there. There was a large number. But what is a demon? In the, in the Bible, it's not, demons are known by other names. They're called unclean spirits or evil spirits. And it's possible that some of the false gods that we see in the Old Testament were actually demons. But what we know is from Scripture is that demons are fallen angels. We have a better idea of what angels are. But about a third of the angels fell with Satan, who was an angel before. They're powerful creatures, but they are limited. And they're ultimately defeated. We know from Scripture that the demons are already defeated. And we see that even in the cry of the demons that faced Jesus. They knew that they were done. They were just were waiting for the time to actually come. Like Satan, the demons don't have, aren't the popular grotesque depiction that we often see of the little red guys with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, all those things you might see around Halloween or something like that. That's not what they... Uh, necessarily look like because they're spiritual creatures, which means they probably don't have a set physical appearance. Um, you know, we talked about uh, a while back when we talked about Satan, how often he would probably appear attractive because that's how sin is. Sin always appears attractive and it's not, we don't realize how bad it is until the backside. And that's probably how it is with the demons and with Satan. It seems attractive if we were to see one in some type of physical representation, they would seem attractive to hide how awful they really are. And in verse 31, it says, they were employing him not to command them to go away into the abyss. The abyss means a bottomless pit. 
It's the same word that's used in Revelation referring to the dwelling place of the demons. And it must be pretty bad because they said, please send us anywhere but there. Anywhere but there. So let's keep reading. Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So here's this man that everyone knew had been demon-possessed. He had been a terror upon himself, upon the community. Uh, It says in other scriptures that he cut himself. You know, this was probably a very scary-looking man. And here he is, the same man in his right mind, clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus as a disciple. He was cured not on the basis of his merit or on his faith, but on God's mercy. And the people who had previously been afraid of this possessed man were now afraid of Jesus and his power because of the effect that it could have on their lives. Some people's lives are more disturbed by the presence of Jesus than that of a legion of demons. Jesus can upend our lives more in our mind than what demons can. We're more comfortable with the demons sometimes than with Jesus. Some people are. Jesus tells him to return to his house. So he gives him this missionary purpose. Go and tell what God has done for you. But he also wanted to avoid the fear and superstition of being away from Jesus. It could have been in this man's mind that if I'm not near Jesus, all of this is going to come back again. But but as Spurgeon put it, it was as if Jesus was saying, you do not need to be near me. I have so healed that you will never be sick again. When Jesus heals, it's completely. And another thing I hope you don't miss, what God has done. It says, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. Jesus had done these things. And if there's ever a clearer statement that Jesus knew and proclaimed that he was God, it's here. Because it says, what great things God has done for you. And then the very next verse, they were saying, what great things Jesus had done for him. They knew that the two were the same. So we see that the work of God, or the work of Jesus, is the work of God. The acts of Jesus are the acts of God. Let's keep reading, starting at verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, And he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. 
So we see this guy, Jairus, that was in a very high position, a position of authority, and it's even remarkable that he would even come to Jesus. But you had to think that he had heard that Jesus was able to heal, and he was desperate because it was his only daughter. And we see the crowd, um, this throng pressing on every side of Jesus. You, You might have in your head a picture of like, a concert or sporting event where everybody's crowded together, or maybe Walmart on Black Friday. Um, Hopefully not that bad. Um, But probably the picture is something like what you see as a famous person or politician working through a crowd, and the crowd just hovering around them, being close to them, wanting to get as close as possible to them. Let's keep reading verse 43. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and cannot be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had, immediately, she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. A few, few notes that we can gather here. Jesus was on his way to do one thing, and there was this interruption. And we see over and over in the ministry of Jesus that he allowed and accepted these interruptions. That even though his life, he knew he had certain things to do, he was never afraid to stop for this woman who was in great need. Later we see that he accepted the children that came to him. He allowed these interruptions, and and we should too. And he responded graciously. I'm not always gracious when somebody interrupts me, uh, but Jesus was always gracious there. And if you know anything about the state of medicine, of ancient medicine, you can see that the cures that these doctors have tried for this woman were probably worse than the illness. Um, in In other passages it said that all these doctors had tried to help her, and it only got worse. And her, this, this attempt at her health care had put her into poverty, which many experience the same thing today. She came from behind him. She came in humility. But she was also considered unclean by the law because of this hemorrhage. She would have been considered unclean, which means that she wasn't allowed to go to worship. She wasn't allowed to be around other people. And if she had come in contact with them, they would also be unclean. So it's understandable that she didn't want to ask for help publicly. But she also knew this may be her only chance to get to Jesus. And it may be her only chance at healing because she tried everything else and nothing worked. It says that she reached and touched the fringe of his cloak. The... uh, In the Old Testament, God gave these rules that there should be tassels on the four corners of your garment. It's in Numbers 15 and also in Deuteronomy 22. And these were to be a reminder of the commandments of the Lord. So you put these things on your clothing that would uh, remind you of God's commandments. The Pharisees would take these and make them much larger than everyone else to show or to appear more righteous than them. And Jesus calls them out for that in Matthew 23. But these were, this was the easiest way or easiest thing that this woman could get to to touch of Jesus. 
And Jesus recognizes it. He says, who touched me? He called her out for her testimony. He encouraged, and he did this to encourage her faith and that of others. Because this was an intentional touch. It wasn't like the crowds pressing in on him where you're shoulder to shoulder and you're just bumping into people and all that. You don't really mean to, but that's just kind of the jostling of the crowd. This woman had intentionally worked her way up through the crowd to touching. And Jesus knew it. And to me, this is a picture that a lot of time, and we talked about last week with the different souls and the seed falling in different souls. There's a lot of people who may have some excitement, who may want to be around Jesus. But it's a different thing to be his actual follower, to have your faith in him. Because Jesus, you know, just as that, that seed that fell on this rocky soil can spring up and seem really excited and have this emotional response, but there's no root there. It dies away. So there's many people who may be excited to be around Jesus, to be a part of a church, but are not really followers of Him. This woman had faith. An example uh, for true followers. And it says, and it says here that Jesus was aware that power had gone out of Him, which is a, a phrase that we see very similar back in Luke chapter six, of power going out of Him, and there being people who were healed. We can't understand this as some type of magic or mechanical magic to where it's like a magic rock that if you touch it, things happen or something like that. That's not the, or like a potion or a charm. That's not the way the healing of Jesus works. But it's also not some type of manipulation like a spell or some type of ritual where if I say the right words and the right things will happen. Um, that's not the way it works with Jesus. Jesus knew what had happened. And he was willing to heal her even if he wasn't the one who initiated it. Even if he wasn't outwardly aware of it. Because many times, just like this, Jairus had come to him and said, I need you to do this act of healing. And so Jesus was going to do it. This woman didn't say anything to Jesus. She just came, but he was willing even if he wasn't the one who initiated it. She was trembling because she was unclean and she knew it. And she knew that if people found out what she had done, that this ceremonially unclean woman had touched what they were regarding was a great teacher or a great prophet, that there could have been a lot of resentment or uh, anger toward her. She was, she was afraid of being discovered. And we see that even when Jesus calls her out, he doesn't point her out. He doesn't go, you, why did you do this? He said, hey, somebody touched me. And he gave her the opportunity to be the one that speaks up. And after she tells all this has happened, all the horrible things that she's gone through, these years of pain, he calls her daughter. Such a powerful word of affection and kindness and love for her to a woman who probably hadn't received that from anyone in a long time. He says some powerful words to her at the end. It says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Which is very similar to what we see in Luke 7 to the woman that he says to the woman who's washing the feet of Jesus with her tears. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
Let's keep reading, starting in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered them, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she is not dead. She has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. We see that while this event is happening with this woman that has been healed, someone else comes from Jairus' house and says, Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter's died. There's nothing more that he can do. Because they had heard that Jesus could heal, but raising somebody from the dead was a different thing. They thought he was too late. And they had limited their faith in Jesus to what they had seen him do previously. They said, well, we've seen him heal people, but we haven't, you know, this is not something we've seen before. So it didn't even occur to them that Jesus could do this. They had a limited view of Christ. Just back, just like the disciples on that boat thought that if Jesus is asleep, he can't help us. But if he's awake, he can help us. This is what we'll see when, when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies and he waits a few days before he goes there and Martha says to him, if you'd been here, you could have done something. They didn't understand whether it's here or later, or whether it's here or somewhere else, or now or later. It doesn't limit the power of Jesus. Jesus had not only the power to heal, but to resurrect the dead which we'd really only seen in the great prophets of the past, such as Elijah and Elisha. They were the only ones that we had seen raise someone from the dead. But now someone even greater than them was there. Jesus says that she was asleep. And they laughed at him. Now they were pretty certain, they they were certain that she was dead. You know, there was no doubt about it. And they turned their mourning to laughing at Jesus. Maybe they thought Jesus was clueless. He just didn't know what was going on. They didn't know, he didn't know what a dead person looked like. Or that he wasn't in touch with reality. And that he didn't know the difference between somebody being dead or being asleep. But Jesus knew. She was truly dead. There's, there's no doubt about that. But she would soon be awakened by Jesus as, as if she was only asleep. Her condition, her state of being dead was temporary. And Jesus knew that. It was not permanent. And so he says to them, do not be afraid, only believe. Because faith removes fear as we trust God rather than our own knowledge and abilities. Because what happens is we try to do everything in our own power. And when that doesn't work, Then we go to God and say, all right, I've tried everything. Can you sort this out for me? 
We have this fear that, that we're going to fail, that it's not going to work out. He says, but do not be afraid, only believe. And he sees that he raises her up and she returns to a normal life immediately, a perfectly mortal, normal life where she's eating and walking around as if none of this had happened. When I was a kid learning to ride a bike, like everybody else, I had a bike with training wheels on it. You know, I think everybody that rides a bike, that's pretty much how you learn. And I'd gotten pretty good at that. And one day I go out to the, the shed and I get my bicycle and one of the training wheels is loosened. It's still on there, but it won't hold any weight. And I'm a pretty smart kid and I know what's happening. It's like they're trying to get me not to use the training wheels anymore. So I just get off and I go ride the bike and, you know, before too long we loosen up the other one and the training wheels are gone. I'm riding a bike just like everybody else. Those training wheels allowed me to know that I can do that. And sometimes that's how we are with our faith. Because whether through storms, opposition, illness, doubt, or even death, our faith will be tested. If your faith is not tested, it's not growing. It's just the way it is. God allows our faith to be tested. And He prompts us to grow and to clarify our faith. He takes off the training wheels. He makes us come to things that we know we can't handle, that are beyond what we've done in the past, that are beyond what we've seen God do in the past in our lives. And says, no, I can do more if you have faith that I can. But it's important that we understand what faith is. It's not this We have to make sure that our faith is in the correct person, the correct object of our faith. It's not blind faith. It's not this undirected faith or trusting fate or trusting yourself. You know, you'll hear, I hear this, you know, we've been watching, you know, football and all this stuff. And you say, you know, we have faith that we can do this. And, you know, we have faith in ourselves. And there's there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But that's not the faith we're talking about here. We're talking about faith in Jesus because if we put our faith in anything else, ultimately it's going to fail. The disciples knew that when they were in this storm to go to Jesus. Jairus, this synagogue official, he didn't understand it all, but he knew about Jesus and he went to Jesus. The woman who had been bleeding for all these years knew to go to Jesus. They didn't understand it all. If you'd asked them, can you give me you know, uh, a full doctrine of the personhood of Jesus, they wouldn't have been able to do that. They, they didn't have good systematic theology or anything like that, but they knew who to go to. And they went to Jesus. So we must be sure that our faith is in fact in Jesus. It's not in ourselves. It's not in fate that somehow... In the universe, things are cosmically going to work out for our favor. That's not where our faith is. We can't put our faith in others because others are just going to fail us. Our you know, kids are going to fail us. Our parents are going to fail us. Our friends, our spouses, all of them are going to fail us. We can't put our faith in our career because careers can take left turns and fall apart uh, quicker than you can imagine. Just all those folks in 2008, 2009 who were on a certain path, and it just went away. You can't put your faith in your career. 
can't put your faith in your grades, which is probably not the best thing to say right here before finals. But your grades don't make you who you are. You can't put your faith in your family. As much as we love them and that they love us, they're, they're going to fail us at different times. And you can't put your faith even in your church because the church is made up of people. And, you know, it's a joke that some of my minister friends used to say. It's like, church is great except for the people. And, you know, <laughs> but that's what we're a group of people. And we all still sin. We all still screw up at different times. And we're going to fail each other. We try not to. We do our best with that. But it's going to happen. We see all these different tests of faith that Jesus was in the middle of and the things that he did to grow and encourage the faith of the people who were around him, the people who were following him. He allowed them to go through these tests of faith and he takes these natural things such as the storm or this illness and turns them into tests of faith for them. Don't live your whole life with training wheels on your faith. If you're doing the same things, trusting God only as much as you trusted Him in the past, you're missing huge opportunities to grow in your faith. Because that's the, that's the way we get stronger. We, when we work out our bodies, we have to lift continually heavier weights. We have to run longer. We have to run faster. That's how we grow. It's our faith is the same thing. We have to keep pushing it. We have to keep putting more of our lives in the hands of God and less in our own hands. That's how our faith grows. Don't live your whole life with training wheels on your faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the object of our faith, our one hope, the one that we put our lives and our souls and our eternity on his, in His hands and on His shoulders, Lord. And we're thankful that He is more than able to take that, that He bore the cross for our sins. And as we come to this time where we remember Him through the bread and the cup, his body that was broken for us and his blood that was spilled for us. Lord, remind us that our faith, our eternity is safe in his hands. Lord, as for so many centuries the, the Jews looked for a Messiah to come and he came as a baby, not the way that most of them were expecting. And even now we look forward to the day when he returns again and how everyone will see Him and everyone will know. Lord, as we come into this season of Advent and Christmas, we celebrate what You've done and we look forward to what You're going to do, knowing that it's a sure thing, that our faith is not just a hope of something we hope will happen, but it's a promise of what we know will happen because You come through on all Your